Are you studying for your board exams and looking for low-cost, high-quality practice questions? Well, look no further than the High Yield Family Medicine Patreon page. For just $5 a month, you'll gain instant access to over 100 board-style practice questions, each complete with detailed explanations and focusing on all the high-yield topics you need to know for test day. Don't miss out on this opportunity to elevate your studying and enhance your knowledge and skills in family medicine. Sign up now at patreon.com slash highyieldfamilymedicine. Link in the description. Hello, and welcome to Episode 3 of the High Yield Family Medicine Podcast. Labor and delivery is a big topic, so I've decided to break this up into three easy-to-digest chunks. This is part one of the series, and by the end of this episode, we're going to be able to identify the onset of labor, come to understand the three P's of labor and how we monitor them, and then we'll wrap up by discussing the three stages of labor and how to recognize when labor progresses abnormally. In part two of this series, we'll do a deep dive on fetal heart monitoring, including how to interpret it and what to do in certain high-yield scenarios and we'll also be discussing the biophysical profile and how it also shapes management. In part three, we'll be discussing miscellaneous other topics, including preterm labor, preeclampsia, all things C-section, and much, much more. I hope you find this podcast helpful, and if you like what you're hearing, please consider subscribing so that you can stay up to date with all the new episodes I have planned. Enjoy. Okay, let's begin with the onset of labor. Labor onset often coincides with the rupture of membranes, also known as when a woman's water breaks. She'll feel a gush of clear fluid followed by a constant leakage of fluid from her vagina. Identifying this as the first sign of impending labor is critical for several reasons. For one, if someone comes to the emergency department with signs that might seem like they could be in labor, but they actually aren't, then you're just going to waste a lot of time and resources when the baby just isn't ready to come out yet. One example that may be commonly confused with a rupture of membranes is when the woman's mucus plug is released. This is a normal sign seen in late pregnancy and is not a sign of impending labor. What happens here is during pregnancy, the cervix is blocked with a thick layer of mucus known as the mucus plug. This mucus plug serves to protect the baby by blocking bacteria from traveling up the birth canal. But as the pregnancy progresses and the baby grows and its head pushes down on the cervix, the mom's body will produce prostaglandins, and eventually these factors will come together and force the cervix to contract, spread out, and become thin in a process known as effacement. As the cervix continues to efface, the mucus plug may become dislodged and appear as a thick secretion, oftentimes with a bloody show. Although this is a normal sign seen in late pregnancy, it is not a sign of imminent labor in the same way that rupture of membranes is which is totally separate and is due to the rupture of the amniotic sac. There's a few signs that can confirm the rupture of membranes, and these like to come up on questions either in the stem or in the answer choices, so it's important to understand what they signify. On pelvic exam, you should be able to visualize amniotic fluid leaking from the cervix with pooling in the posterior vaginal fornix. On nitrazine paper, amniotic fluid has a pH of around 6.5 or above, whereas vaginal pH is about 3.5 to 4.5. 
and if you put the fluid on a microscope slide, you should be able to see ferning, which is a characteristic pattern of amniotic fluid versus other types of secretions. Another important thing to note is the time of the rupture of membranes. Sometimes a woman's water will break and contractions won't start immediately afterwards. When this happens, it is called premature rupture of membranes, or PROM. In pregnancy where PROM happens prior to 37 weeks, it is called preterm PROM, or P-PROM. PROM and P-PROM have many possible causes, including certain drugs and STIs, but oftentimes the cause just isn't known. If PROM is prolonged, especially greater than 24 hours, it can lead to chorioamnionitis, or infections of the placental tissue, which can be very dangerous for both mom and the baby. In response to PROM and P-PROM, clinicians will commonly administer oxytocin as a way of stimulating uterine contractions. Other issues associated with PROM include placental abruption, which is where the placenta detaches from the uterus too early, and compression of the umbilical cord, but we'll talk about these and other complications of labor in parts 2 and 3 of the series. Successful labor is dependent upon three factors, maternal efforts and uterine contractions, fetal characteristics, and pelvic anatomy. These factors are classically referred to as passenger, power, and passage, or the three Ps. The three Ps are monitored using multiple modalities, including serial cervical examinations, fetal heart monitoring, and cardiocotography, which measures the force of contractions. Before we talk about the three stages of labor, let's familiarize ourselves with some useful terms that often come up when describing cervical exams. Dilation, effacement, and fetal station. We've already discussed effacement, which is where the baby's head pushes down on the mom's cervix and causes it to relax and thin out. One way to conceptualize this is to imagine the cervix like the neck of a turtleneck sweater. For most of the pregnancy, the cervix, which is the neck of the sweater, is about three and a half to four centimeters long. As the baby descends into the birth canal, the neck of the sweater gets stretched out more and more and becomes thin and flat. Effacement can be described as a percentage, where 0% is no stretching of the cervix, and 100% is when the cervix is completely stretched out and flat as a sheet of paper. Dilation is a term used to describe the degree to which the cervix is opened and is expressed in centimeters. For example, a cervix that is fully dilated is about 10 centimeters. And lastly, fetal station is a measure of how far down the birth canal the baby's head has descended. It is described on a scale from negative 5 to positive 5, with each unit on the scale representing approximately 1 centimeter. During a vaginal exam, the doctor may reach with their finger to feel for the baby's head. If the head is too high, it is not yet in the birth canal and is said to be at negative 5 station. Approximately two weeks before delivery, the mother will typically experience a drop or a lightening, allowing her to take deeper breaths but also feel more compression on her bladder. This is a sign that the baby's head has now descended within the birth canal and is said to be engaged at zero station. At zero station, the baby's head is aligned with the ischial spines at the narrowest part of the pelvis. As the baby's head descends further, it starts to get into the positive end of the scale. And just before birth, as the baby's head descends and fills the vaginal opening, it is at positive five station. 
Clinicians will use the terms dilation, effacement, and fetal station as a way to track the progression of labor and to communicate with other team members in a standardized way. Now that we understand these basic terms, let's discuss the three stages of labor. Broadly speaking, the three stages of labor are as follows. The first stage of labor encompasses all of the physiologic changes that occur within the birth canal as it prepares for the passage of the baby. The second stage of labor is the actual delivery of the baby. And the third stage of labor is the delivery of the placenta. Stage one can be subdivided into early labor and active labor. Early labor is defined as the onset of labor up until when the cervix is dilated to about three to six centimeters. Early labor or latent labor can normally last up to several hours, up to 20 hours in noliparous woman and 14 hours in multiparous woman. During this time, contractions become persistent, strong, and more frequent. Frequent cervical checks are not recommended during early labor as the cervix is expected to dilate relatively slowly and each exam carries the risk of contaminating the birth canal with bacteria. Early labor continues until the cervix is dilated to 6 centimeters, at which point active labor begins. Active labor is the period during which the cervix is dilated from 6 centimeters all the way to maximal dilation at 10 centimeters. At this point, the cervix should be monitored every few hours to track the rate of dilation. During active labor, there should be an expected cervical dilation rate of at least one centimeter every two hours. If during active labor, the cervix dilates less than one centimeter every two hours, this is said to be a protraction of active labor and management consists of augmenting contractions with oxytocin. If there is no cervical change after four hours of adequate contractions or six hours of inadequate contractions, then this is said to be an arrest of active labor in which case an intervention such as a C-section is indicated. Now, before I move on to the second stage of labor, I just mentioned the phrases adequate contractions and inadequate contractions. What did I mean by this? Well, remember the cardiocatography I mentioned earlier? This is a monitor that is placed on the mother's abdomen during labor, which measures the intensity of the pressure generated from uterine contractions. Contractions tend to come in waves, and these waves can be recorded over time. If you isolate a 10-minute window of cardiocatography and add up the pressure at the peaks of each of the contractions, then you are left with a number expressed in Montevideo units. If the number you get by adding up all the peaks within any 10-minute window period is above 200 Montevideo units, then the contractions are said to be adequate. We'll talk more about cardiocatography and fetal heart monitoring in part two of this series. Moving on, the second stage of labor describes a period when the cervix is maximally dilated at 10 centimeters up until when the baby is delivered. As the baby descends through the birth canal, it undergoes a series of so-called cardinal movements in order to best position itself for its journey into the world. First, it will flex its neck so that its chin is to its chest. Then, it will undergo internal rotation such that the baby's occiput is facing the mother's pubic symphysis. Next, the baby's head and neck will extend as it passes underneath the pubic symphysis, then upwards towards the vaginal opening. By now, the baby's head will be visible from the outside. At this point, external rotation occurs by allowing the baby to face either the right side or the left side of the mom, 
with one shoulder aligning anteriorly below the pubic symphysis and the other shoulder facing posteriorly towards the sacrum. Maternal pushing along with gentle traction of the head will allow for delivery of the anterior shoulder and upward traction will allow for delivery of the posterior shoulder, at which point the rest of the body will follow. Sometimes, the anterior shoulder will not readily deliver beyond the pubic symphysis. This is an obstetrical emergency called shoulder dystocia. And what is the most common cause of shoulder dystocia? That's right, it's macrosomia due to gestational diabetes. If shoulder dystocia occurs, it can lead to nerve palsies, anoxic brain injuries, and maternal trauma. There are a number of maneuvers that could be implemented in order to ensure delivery with shoulder dystocia. And these maneuvers tend to come up a lot on board exams, especially testing you on the order in which you should try these maneuvers. The very first step when faced with shoulder dystocia is to perform the McRoberts maneuver, in which the mom's legs are flexed against her abdomen, allowing the pelvis to open and allow for delivery. McRoberts maneuver is the least invasive of everything else I'm going to describe after and should always be attempted first. If McRoberts doesn't release the anterior shoulder, the next step is to perform the Rubin 1 maneuver, which is to use your hands to apply suprapubic pressure. If this doesn't work, then the clinician must attempt more invasive methods, starting with the Rubin 2, which involves the physician inserting their fingers into the vagina to reach the posterior aspect of the anterior shoulder and adduct the anterior shoulder so that it becomes internally rotated in front of the baby's chest. If this doesn't work, then the Woods corkscrew maneuver can be attempted, in which the physician's fingers are placed on the anterior aspect of the posterior shoulder and the posterior shoulder is moved in the same direction as the Rubin II, much like a corkscrew. Sometimes, the Woods corkscrew and the Rubin II are performed simultaneously, although typically an episiotomy is required in order to accomplish this. If that doesn't work, the next step is to attempt to deliver the posterior shoulder with the physician placing their hands inside the mother's vagina and reaching down for the posterior arm down to the elbow and attempting to pull that whole arm through. This will usually work to relieve the dystocia, but there's also a risk of fracturing the baby's humerus. If that doesn't work, then the next step is to intentionally fracture the baby's clavicle in order to decrease the width of the shoulders. I know this sounds pretty brutal, but it wouldn't be done unless the alternative was much worse, which is why you should always try the least invasive maneuvers first. If for some reason the shoulder is still stuck after trying all of this, there is one more procedure that you can attempt called the Zavinelli maneuver. I've never seen a test question where Zavinelli maneuver was the correct answer, but sometimes they like to throw it in as a wrong answer choice just to try to throw you off. But please don't be fooled. The Zavinelli maneuver is a last ditch effort to deliver a baby with shoulder dystocia after everything else has failed. Basically, the Zavinelli's maneuver is when the baby's head is pushed back through the birth canal, followed by C-section. So again, in order, it's McRoberts, then suprapubic pressure, also known as Rubin 1, then Rubin 2, in which the anterior shoulder is internally rotated towards the chest, then Rubin 2 plus Wood's corkscrew, which is where the posterior shoulder is rotated towards the back, like a corkscrew, then delivery of the posterior arm with the risk of a humerus fracture, then intentional clavicular fracture, then Zavinelli. 
make sure to remember the order. And finally, that brings us to the third stage of labor, which encompasses the period from when the baby is delivered to when the placenta is delivered. This could last anywhere up to 30 minutes, and the main issue here is that there can be pieces of retained placenta, which is a common cause of postpartum hemorrhage. But we'll talk more about this and other causes of hemorrhage in greater detail in part three of this series. All right, now that we have a good grasp on labor onset, the three Ps, and the three stages of labor, let's do some practice questions before we move on to part two, where we'll be discussing fetal heart rate monitoring and the biophysical profile. Question one, a G2 P1 27 year old woman presents to the emergency department reporting progressively consistent contractions and stating that her water broke four hours ago. Which one of the following signs is consistent with the rupture of membranes? A. Vaginal secretions with a pH less than 4.5. B. Bloody mucus vaginal secretions. C. Ferning noted when observing the fluid under a microscope. Or D. Noting an effacement of 30% on cervical exam. C. Ferning is a characteristic feature of amniotic fluid under a microscope. Amniotic fluid is clear, unlike a mucus plug, which is a sign of late pregnancy and does not necessarily indicate impending labor. Similarly, partial effacement also begins in late pregnancy and does not necessarily indicate impending labor. Question 2. A G1, P1, 25-year-old woman is in the labor and delivery unit and you want to determine if her labor is progressing appropriately. On cervical exam, she is 7 centimeters dilated. On her last exam, 3 hours ago, she was 6 centimeters dilated. Assuming adequate contractions, which of the following accurately describes the progression of labor? A. The early stage of labor is in arrest and a C-section is indicated. B. The active stage of labor is in arrest and a C-section is indicated. C. The active stage of labor is protracted and uterine contraction augmentation is indicated. Or D. Labor is progressing normally. Answer. C. The active stage of labor is protracted and uterine contraction augmentation is indicated. The active stage of labor begins at 6 centimeters dilation and has an expected dilation rate of 1 centimeter every 2 hours. This patient has dilated from 6 centimeters to 7 centimeters over the course of 3 hours. Thus, her active stage of labor is protracted. The management in this case is to augment her uterine contractions using oxytocin. Question 3. Which of the following signs are consistent with an arrest of active stage of labor? A. No cervical change in two hours with Montevideo units less than 200. B. No cervical change in two hours with Montevideo units greater than 200. C. No cervical change in five hours with Montevideo units less than 200. Or D. No cervical change in five hours with Montevideo units greater than 200. Answer. D. No cervical change in 5 hours with Montevideo units greater than 200. Arrest of active labor is defined as no cervical change for 4 hours with adequate contractions, determined by Montevideo units over 200, 
or no cervical changes for six hours with inadequate contractions determined by Montevideo units less than 200. Question four, a G1, P1, 31-year-old woman with gestational diabetes is delivering a baby who is large for his gestational age. During delivery, the baby's anterior shoulder is unable to pass under the mother's pubic symphysis. After performing the McRoberts maneuver, the baby's shoulder is still unable to be delivered. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? A. Suprapubic pressure. B. Rubin II. C. Woods corkscrew. Or D. Zavanelli maneuver. Answer A. Suprapubic pressure. Suprapubic pressure also known as the Rubin 1, is the last non-invasive maneuver to perform before attempting any more invasive procedures such as Rubin 2, Woods Corkscrew, or Zavanelli when treating shoulder dystocia.